Landon is on vacation this week. I'm excited to be able to teach this morning. I always love when he gives me the honor of teaching. And I'm very excited to jump into Hebrews, especially this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4. I've been studying Hebrews chapter 4 for several weeks, and that's a joke. That's for, <laughs> you're, you're looking at me going, this says Hebrews 3. Um, that's for Landon later this week when he listens to the podcast. He has a little mini heart attack. Uh, <laughs> so, hey, when the youth pastor is preaching, we got to play. Um, we're looking at Hebrews 3 this morning. I almost said 4 again. Uh, <laughs> I've been studying several weeks. Um, excited to jump into it with you this morning. Uh, before we get into it, I want to take a second and let's remember the main idea of the book of Hebrews that Landon's been presenting to us the last couple weeks. And this is a truth that as we continue through Hebrews, that we need to keep in front of us every every week as we go chapter by chapter. Um, And it's that negatively, Hebrews was written to warn Christians about the dangers of falling away. And positively, it's written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. And there's a balance between these two things. And Landon's been reminding us each week as we look at that, that main idea that Hebrews is not, it's not promoting a works-based faith. It's not teaching us that we can somehow lose our salvation. It's much like the book of James, that even though we didn't earn our faith, that faith should drive us to persevere in faith rather than to drift away. And I know as we go further into the study of Hebrews, Landon is going to look at that dichotomy and help us make sense of that tension a little bit better. When we look through a book of the Bible upstairs in youth, um, I like to take time at the beginning of each lesson to, to do a recap uh, of, the, of the previous lessons because I think it, it helps us to gather our thoughts and prepare our minds for what we're about to look at. Um, And so I'm going to do that here in just a second, but I want to take a second and let you know something. I don't know how many of you know that upstairs on Wednesday nights in youth, I preach the same thing to students that Landon teaches to the adults. And I do that for a couple reasons. One is that I think it's just good content, and I think students are capable of handling it. But the primary reason I do that is so that those of you who have students, you have a natural built-in opportunity for discipleship conversation at home. You can come here Wednesday, hear a lesson from Landon, and know that I'm teaching your student the same thing so that when you go home, you can help each other process through it and work through it, and you can disciple your student through that, that lesson. So, I want to take a second at the beginning here to recap Hebrews 1 and 2. Um, When we began this series two weeks ago, Landon told us that the author of Hebrews is known only to God. There's been people speculate for years about who it might be, and people have some pretty strong opinions about it, but we don't know. He also talked about the book of Hebrews being an epistle, but it's not like the other epistles that were written to Gentile churches. This is an epistle written to the Hebrew people. And as we continue this study through the book, what you'll see is that the author of Hebrews has a very, very good grasp on Old Testament literature and practice of the the Jewish faith. 
He systematically, chapter by chapter, works the audience through this argument to establish Jesus as the great high priest. And as he does this, he shows, he shows a real powerful command of the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures. He knows how the Hebrew people think. And he knows how to systematically prove to them the deity of Christ. So he begins in chapter 1, and he shows all these distinct characteristics of Christ. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, Landon gave us this big list. Uh, and thankfully, he didn't make us fill in all those blanks. But right out of the gate, the author of Hebrews is making his intent clear. He plans to show the Jewish people that Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He's the one that's been prophesied. He's the one that they've been waiting for. He's the one that they need for salvation. Then in chapter 2, last week, uh, Landon talked to us about how chapter 2 has a heavy focus on drifting away. Most, we, we talked about how most people who leave the church, who leave the faith, don't leave because of a big event. Some do, but the vast majority of people who leave the church simply just drift away over time. He also talked about how uh, a large thrust of chapter 2 is that Jesus is greater than the angels. And as we look at Hebrews as a systematic argument for Christ, this is, this is the next likely step in the argument. You've established who Jesus is, that he is the prophet, priest, and king. But you have to be clear. The author has to be clear that he's not just an angel. He's not just another spiritual being that's playing a part in this story. He is God. He has to be set apart from the angels. There can't be any question in the mind of the audience as to the origin of Christ's being. So as we begin to look today at chapter 3, there's a couple things that I want to give you for context before we read the chapter and dive into the lesson. The first thing that you want to see um, is that chapter 3 begins with a therefore transition, just like chapter 2. In fact, if you flip through the chapters of Hebrews, uh, what you'll find is that almost every single chapter begins with a therefore or a now statement. And this is one of the biggest keys that we have in, in seeing that the book of Hebrews is written as a systematic argument. Because both of these statements, therefore and now, are ways of saying, okay, in light of what I've just told you, now consider this. The author is moving the audience from point to point. He's building his argument brick by brick. So when we come to the therefore in chapter 3, we have to understand that everything we're about to read in chapter 3 can only truly be understood and applicable if we first have a comprehension of chapter one and chapter two. Again, why I like to do a recap. So as we start chapter three, we have to already have the groundwork in place that Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. That he is much more than an angel. He's, com he's a completely different type of being. He's a being that is set apart, he's holy. And this chapter helps us to establish that. Next thing we need to notice is that this passage is a Trinitarian passage. It drives me crazy that people don't want to believe in the Trinities because the word Trinity doesn't appear in Scripture. Because those people are not reading passages like Hebrews 3, 
where the only idea about God that you can walk away with is that God is one in essence and three in person. Right here in the text. It's, it's much more clear in the first six verses, but it's throughout the whole text. In verse 6, uh, verses 1 to 6, he's establishing the deity of Christ, telling the audience that Jesus is God. Then in verse 7, he, he, he quotes Psalm 95, and he attributes the authority of Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. And he's not, he's not confused. He's giving a picture of the Trinity by saying, I know that God has authority of Scripture. The Holy Spirit has authority as well. Um, then later in verse uh, 12, he, he talks about a rest, a rest that is in the living God. The author of Hebrews is a believer in the Trinity. He may not use the word Trinity, but he believes in the Trinity. Last thing I want you to see before we read the passage uh, is that there's a very strong connection between this passage and Psalm 95. Earlier I had Corey read uh, Psalm 95 for us. It's because if you look at Psalm 95... What you see is that it's the book of Hebrews. It's the book of Hebrews condensed down to 11 verses. Psalm 95 is a call to worship, which is a reminder to us to persevere in the faith. And then it shifts to a reminder of the dangers of falling away. That's our main idea for the whole book of Hebrews. They're saying the same thing. So in these chapters, uh, specifically chapters 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews really hones in on Psalm 95. He actually ends up quoting it about five times between the two chapters because he really wants the audience to get the connection between the two and see the argument for Christ. So now that we've recapped, I've given you some context for chapter 3. Let's read the passage in its entirety together, and then we will pray and jump into the lesson. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not also those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. God, you are holy and you are righteous. God, we come together today as your people, as your house, to worship your name, to glorify you. God, we pray that above all else that you are glorified this morning, not just here at Emmanuel, but throughout the world. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. I pray that you speak truth to us this morning. Help us to hear clearly and to see. Help us to persevere in the faith. May we leave here looking more like you than when we got here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so now that we've read the passage, I want to give you the big idea for today. The big idea is that Jesus is the greater Moses who came to rescue God's people from their sin. And as I tell you the big idea for today, I'm wondering how many of you think that that sounds familiar, because it should sound familiar. That's the exact same big idea from three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, Landon uh, gave us our last lesson in the book of John before the fall. We were taking a break from John over the summer to look at Hebrews. And the next day after he gave that lesson over John 6, 1 to 15, I told him, I'm going to use that same exact big idea when I speak on Hebrews 3, because it's the exact same. It's much easier to see this big idea in the first six verses, but it does run throughout the entire chapter. And as we look at how the big idea unfolds in this chapter, there's a few things that I want you to see. The first thing that we need to notice is that, as the big idea suggests, Jesus is the greater Moses. So as the author spent the last two chapters establishing who Jesus is, who Jesus was, what he did, that he is the anointed prophet, priest, and king, that he's more than just another angel. The next logical step in this systematic argument that he's making is to address the personhood of Christ. He's already established that Jesus is much different from any other spiritual being. Now he has to deal with the fact that Jesus was a human. And so the author is trying to show us in the verses that Jesus is much more than a prophet that was sent by God. He's much more than another prophet that's playing a part in the story. So if, if you're going to establish Jesus as more than just another prophet, you have to go big or go home. So he looks to the most revered, most respected prophet in all of the Old Testament, and he compares Jesus to Moses. And in the mind of the first century Jew, Moses is the pinnacle example of Jewish life. Moses was chosen and anointed by God to lead God's people out of slavery and take them to the promised land, to God's rest. Moses led them through the wilderness. He gave them the law. He wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jewish life was completely and utterly dependent upon the law. Everything they did was measured and weighed by the law. 
So to say that Jesus is greater than Moses would have been a very heavy claim. If you're going to argue to these people that their law, everything they've devoted their lives to, is not going to save them, but Jesus is, you can't only compare Jesus to the author of the law. You have to show and prove that Jesus is the author of the author of the law. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus created Moses. Verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. Uh, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house was built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You have to establish Jesus as the author of the author of the law. Jesus is no ordinary prophet. He created the law. He's the one who fulfills the law. And so verse 3, he's counted more worthy of glory than Moses. Second thing we need to see is that Moses should still be held in high regard. To say that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses is not a slight at Moses in any way. In fact, the author of Hebrews here is pretty careful in how he constructs his argument. Um, he's very intentional to make sure that Moses is still held in high regard. Verse 5, he was faithful in all God's house. There's no denying that Moses was a faithful servant. He had his stumblings from time to time, but the overarching pattern of his life was faithfulness to God. The author of Hebrews knows that as he's trying to place Christ in a more prominent position than Moses, he can't just throw Moses under the bus. He'd completely lose the audience if he did that. So he rightly places Moses, um, praises Moses for his faithfulness and his service to God, but also he places Moses under the authority of Christ. And the way that he does that is, is with this illustration of the house where he's basically saying that if God's people were a house, Moses was part of that house. He was a faithful servant as part of that house. But Jesus, Jesus is the builder. He's the architect. He's the creator. And the builder deserves more glory than the house itself. Moses was a servant, but Jesus, he was the creator. And he was a son. The third thing that we want to see is that the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is God. Now, he doesn't come right out and say, Jesus is God. But he's expecting us to imply it. He's expecting us to pick up on it. In verse 3, Jesus is given the title of builder of the house. And then immediately in verse 4, he says that God is the builder. And he's not confused. In his mind, Jesus is God. But Jesus is more than a builder. He's also a son, which makes him the inheritor. It makes him the Lord, the ruler of the house. Not only did he create the church, but he reigns over the church. Next thing we need to notice is that we should heed the warning of Psalm 95 to not harden our hearts and drift away. As I said earlier, Psalm 95 is quoted five times between chapters 3 and 4. And Psalm 95 is a mini picture of the book of Hebrews. It starts out with a powerful call to worship. 
And we should take that as the author telling us that we need to persevere in faith, to, be com- to commit ourselves to pure, powerful worship. Then at the end of Psalm 95, he transitions to talking about what it looks like to turn away from God. He's specifically helping us remember the generation that God turned away from the promised land. They hardened their hearts toward him. They refused to have faith. Even though this is the same generation, this is the same generation that experienced the plagues, they experienced the exit from Egypt, they experienced God parting the Red Sea for them, They ate manna from heaven. They saw water come from rocks. They saw God lead them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And then they come to the promised land and they still have unbelief. They didn't have faith that God would lead them into the land. So he refused them entrance into his rest. They were sentenced to die out in the wilderness And so as the author of Hebrews reminds us, as the of the judgment that comes with the hardening of hearts towards God, he's helping us key into the fact that Jesus adds more gravity to this situation. The next thing that we need to see is that there's an added gravity to persevering in the faith. When Israel hardens their hearts, they face judgment. They're turned away from the promised land, they're turned away from God's rest. They're sent to wander in the desert until that generation, that unbelieving generation, dies off. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that we're at the same juncture. Because of who Jesus is, because of the house that he's built, we're faced with a choice, a choice to persevere in faith, or harden our hearts and face judgment. However, the warning here is that the judgment for us is going to be much more severe. Because the difference is that Israel was punished for a time. A generation died off, and they eventually got to go into God's earthly rest. If we harden our hearts towards God, we face his eternal judgment. We're turned away from his eternal rest. Jesus adds a gravity to the situation. So we should read Hebrews 3, and we should read it in conjunction with Psalm 95, and hold fast to the confidence of our hope. But how do we do that? What does it look like to hold fast to the confidence of our hope? So I have a few points of application before I I wrap up. This phrase of holding fast to our confidence is mentioned a couple times in this passage. Verse 6 and verse 14. But what does it look like? And how will doing this help us enter into God's eternal rest? There's a couple things I want us to see. First thing is that we need to consider Jesus. When the author of Hebrews opens chapter 3, he opens with consider Jesus. It's part of this systematic argument that he's making. As we think about the argument carrying over from chapter 2 where Jesus is portrayed as the high priest who made propitiation for our sins, when we think about what it means to persevere in faith and to be careful to to not let our hearts drift away, the way we hold fast to hope of confidence 
is by filling our minds with Christ. We think about him. We meditate on him. We read his word. We read his commands. When our focus is fixed on who Christ is, what Christ has done, it's going to be hard for us to drift away. It's going to be hard for us to lose the hope in our confidence. Second thing we need to do is to take care to not have an evil, unbelieving heart. The reason that Israel was turned away from the promised land and refused entrance into God's earthly rest is because they allowed their hearts to be hardened. They let their evil unbelief take over their hearts. We want to hold fast to the hope of our confidence. We can't allow our unbelief to harden our hearts. We have to consider Jesus and let the truth of who he is fill our hearts. Um, Landon likes to quote theologians. (laughs) And over the last several weeks, he's quoted Spurgeon a few times and people say there's a similarity there I keep getting told that I need to dress up as Spurgeon for Halloween Uh, (laughs) I don't see it I'm I'm kidding (laughs) but not to be outdone I wanted to quote my own theologian a modern theologian a guy by the name of John Christ as we as we think about not hardening our hearts we have to check our hearts Check your heart. That hit with about half the room, but those that got it, you're welcome. Uh, (laughs) The third thing we need to do is to exhort one another. Exhort one another. Drifting away is easy to do. That's why it happens to so many people. Persevering in the faith is hard. And sometimes it can seem overwhelming. In verse 13, when the author of Hebrews encourages us to exhort one another, he's trying to tell us that while it's hard, we don't have to do it alone. I don't use a lot of uh, illustrations when I preach. You may have noticed I didn't open with one. It's primarily because I never feel like I can come up with a good one. Uh, I always think of something and I go, no, that's corny. But Landon gave me one for this point, so we'll see how it goes. (laughs) If you've ever gone floating down the river, which is a a fun pastime, you typically go with a group of people. Everybody's got their own tube. Sometimes uh, throughout the trip, maybe the water's getting a little fast or it's getting overly crowded and you want to stay together with your group. So maybe you hold on to each other's tubes or maybe you tie the tubes together. Um, Sometimes you have a tube that has a a specialized cooler that fits in it that has all of your bottled water in it, right? And you don't want your buddy or your bottled water drifting away, so you work together to keep each other together. If someone starts to drift, you, you have this urgency to bring them back to the group. And that's kind of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. We're saved by faith alone, but not we don't have to walk through that faith alone. The way the house of God was built is that it was designed for us to there should be an urgency among us to reach those people who are drifting away. 
And that urgency should be fueled because we understand the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the judgment. So as I wrap up this morning, I want to make sure that we understand the big idea of the passage and clearly see it throughout the passage. In chapter 3, the author of Hebrews is carrying over the idea that he starts in chapter 2, that Jesus is more than just a normal human. He's more than just another prophet. He is the prophet. He's greater than Moses himself. But as we consider Jesus to be the ultimate and final prophet, it means that we must take care to not respond to him the same way that Israel responded to Moses. They had unbelief in what Moses was telling them, and they were denied access into God's earthly rest. If we, on the other hand, harden our hearts and refuse to believe in who Jesus is and what he did, we'll be denied access into God's eternal rest. So, we have to consider Jesus. We have to take care to not have an evil, unbelieving heart. We must exhort one another while today is still called today. That we may not be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray.